Walter Belpin, the team on the brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron, and what follows. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of the program to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week, the damn World Series. It has concluded, and yet one needs to perform a sort of analytical autopsy to understand what the hell happened. With regard to the Royals, the Kansas City Royals, are their advanced scouts somehow better than other clubs' advanced scouts? With regard to the other 29 clubs in Major League Baseball, ought we to expect them to copy the Kansas City Royals after that club has experienced two consecutive years of success? Finally, what do uh, the decision-making sciences and or Dave Cameron's own personal biases tell us about Terry Collins' decision to let Matt Harvey pitch the ninth inning of the decisive game of that World Series. Well, it wouldn't have been a decisive game. It became a decisive game. What else one can uh, expect to find in, in the following is uh, is Dave Cameron, who has a computer brain, providing a description of dance as he sees it. And your body did the right series of things. That is Dave Cameron describing dance as he sees it. Plenty, plenty more of Dave Cameron to follow. Before we get to that conversation with Dave Cameron, I would be remiss and also in breach of contract were I not to inform you of the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with DraftKings or FanDuel? Those are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game. It is unique, however, and is the first uh, such daily fantasy sports game made exclusively and truly for mobile devices. Draft is simple. Uh, all one does is to find a friend in the draft universe or an internet stranger, also in the draft universe, uh, to select five players each by means of a, by means of a snake draft to observe as those players accrue fantasy points, and then to win or lose. Those who are particularly confident in their abilities can uh, wager American currency. And I should say, uh, I know that I've delivered this sponsor's message before. This is not lost on anyone, and I know that listeners have played draft because I've played. Uh, draft against them in the sport of baseball. However, allow me to inform you that draft is available not just for baseball, but also for the NFL and college brands of football, as well as NHL hockey and NBA basketball. There are other sports besides baseball, it turns out, and draft is aware of this too and has designed fantasy games for your pleasure. Has it been a minute yet? I'm contractually obligated to provide a minute of sponsors' messages. I think it's been a minute. In any case, if you want to play draft and you have an iOS operating system, Go to the App Store. If you have an Android, go to Google Play or something like Google Play. There, I believe that concludes the message. What it doesn't conclude, though, is the uh, is the podcast because what we have now is a conversation uh, on Fangraphs Audio with Dave Cameron that begins right now. I guess it's only been a week, huh? Uh, did we talk last week? Yeah, maybe we didn't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the playoffs were strange. I think I was trying to figure out. What, uh, you always think they're strange. Yeah, I like I like these playoffs though. I did. Good. I did some of the some of the last couple of games of the Mets were. I mean, for as good as they were uh, for Kansas City, uh, they were. Uh, one had the sense too that it was mostly just New York playing poorly and making bad decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the tricky things, right, is like when a team looks like they're playing poorly, uh, you know, there's some, I don't know, that's, I wouldn't say pressure, but some 
desire to maybe give their opponent credit, especially in like, you know, a sport like basketball or football or something where the defense is, uh, literally capable of interfering with the offensive plan and, you know, like the quarterback makes a bad throw, maybe it's because he got pressured or he, you know, the receivers weren't open and because, you know, good defense from the corners or, you know, there's, uh, interaction in a way that makes it just difficult to be like, oh, this guy played badly, we'd blame him. In baseball, it's a little more, uh, you know, cut and dried. Like, Daniel Murphy botched a ground ball. <laughs> or, couple, yeah, a couple, you know. couple ground balls. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, uh, you know, the Lucas Duda couldn't throw home. And, yeah, I mean, you can, like, credit Eric Hosmer for betting that Lucas Duda wouldn't come home and, like, saying, you know what, we know Lucas Duda's not a good defender and has a throwing problem. Um, so you can give them, like, credit for taking advantage of a known weakness. Uh, but right, uh, a lot of the bets errors were maybe, uh, I wouldn't say unforced, but like, uh, not obviously influenced by the Royals, uh, or at least not caused anyway. Right. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you actually uh, very soon here about advanced scouting and how that might have, what part that might have played in the series, especially some of those plays you mentioned specifically. But I, I think just in terms of one who is consuming the game, I think, uh, I think it's also true that you're always hoping that a team wins by virtue of its merits as opposed to uh, the other team's flaws. Yeah, I mean, I think that did happen in this case. I mean, right, like the Royals won four out of five games. This isn't a scenario where, like, uh, you know, it went seven and the Royals won because of a bad call or uh, solely because of Dan over his air. Like, the Mets only won one game. Uh, so I do, I mean, I think at least in the World Series, uh, and, you know, probably in the ALCS, too, we can say that, the you know, the Royals just played better. Yeah. There was, there became a sense of inevitability uh, to the Royals and their their ability to um, to succeed, especially in late innings. The, an inevitability that a, a person uh, applying reason to the situation would not necessarily, on the one hand, uh, would not necessarily... Uh, find any objective reasons for, uh, except for the fact that the Royals uh, had done it in all the previous games as well, or many of the previous games. Yeah, I mean, the Royals were a challenge, uh, or I would say the Royals' performance, I guess, would be a challenge, uh, I think, to not analysts, but maybe right, logical process of thinking. Like, uh, I don't think there's any question that for the last couple of years the Royals have you know, won in ways that uh, historically teams have not won. So they're unique in, in a sense. And, and I think when we see teams or players do unique things, generally the tendency is to say, like, you know, that's there's probably some luck there, right? Like, it's, it's very hard to keep doing things in a way that no one else can do them. And, you know, some people look at it and be like, ah, oh, they figured out how to, uh, you know, crack the code or, you know, solve the mystery, and they're the only ones who know how to do this. Uh, that's unlikely. Right, I mean, that is unlikely. Well, right, this is a um, th- th- this is a theme that we visited previously. I think, for example, with a couple additions, certainly one notable addition of the Baltimore Orioles, right? Right. Uh, a, a few years of the uh, social-led Angels, right? Yeah. Um, there have been teams who have done this before. They just haven't kept it up. Right, and then and maybe some some additions of the White Sox to at least outperforming their their White Sox, yeah, outperform outperforming their projections, which is a little different because I think the projections just uh, didn't realize that Don Cooper could fix any pitcher. <laughs> oh right, so so before the season you say like oh like well they have Esteban Loaiza. Yeah, he's yeah. terrible, and then he's, he was you know a Cy Young winner because Don Cooper's magical. Wait, and apparently Don Cooper is now Ray Searge <laughs> and lives in Pittsburgh. Right. 
They're uh, yes, they're, yeah, but, and we and I think we discussed this last time we spoke about the difference between uh, hitting and pitching coaches, maybe in the the, uh, the sort of reach of their influence. And, right. And, but I, the, the Royals and Orioles and Angels are a bit different, and the, they're not actually getting players to help perform so much as they're just kind of stacking their good events in the most uh, efficient way possible. And uh, that seems to be something that, uh, you know, I hesitate to call it luck, but seems to not be something that teams can do over and over for long periods of time. Right. Which is a distinction, I'm surely we've stated this before, but there's no harm in stating it again, that there is a different, is there a difference? Or I'll, I'll ask it in the form of a question. Is there a difference between luck and exhibiting a skill that is not sustainable over <laughs> for over a very long sample? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think luck, uh, as we use it in general day-to-day life, generally comes more with the connotation of, like, you didn't do anything uh, in order to cause the, the thing that happened to you. Like, you know, you won the lottery or, you know, um, you know, some random thing just happened to you that was completely out of your control. We're in an athletic competition. Like, you know, hitting a half-court shot was the result of you, you know, putting just the right amount of force into a shot at a distance. Like, there's a calculation that goes into it, and your body did the right series of things uh, to, you know, uh, kind of imbue the ball with enough uh, or just the right amount of force to get to the rim and, you know, go through the net at that right angle. So, you know, you were involved in the calculation, essentially. Um, but it's a very difficult calculation to do over and over, which is no one, why no one's shooting half-court shots for a living. Right. Um, but although, so think, in theory, right, someone who had practiced half-court shots would be more likely than someone who's taking it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, I think in, in baseball's similar. is like there are acts of real high-level skill and I think well, a lot of times what we see is like unsustainable uh, isn't necessarily means that the guy doesn't have the ability to do it better than anyone else. There's just not a large spread in talent at the major league level, right? So when you have a whole bunch of people who are really good at this competing against each other, then one doesn't necessarily win more often than the other because they're evenly matched in the skill. And so it's not so much that they don't have this skill as that they all have about the same amount of the skill, which is, you know, uh, maybe a semantical difference, but, you know, one that at least acknowledges that this isn't just randomness. Like, you know, there isn't, uh, you know, the Royals have worked very hard to be able to hit the baseball. <laughs> like, that is something they're good at. Right. Yes. Um, uh, okay. So with regard on the topic of advanced scouting, this receives some attention, um, in, uh, rightly so, it may be. Uh, uh, first of all, August Fagerstrom wrote a piece in uh, the site yesterday, for the site yesterday. And I want to say it's uh, what a pleasure it is to have August Fagerstrom back. Agreed. Uh, he's, he's good. He's producing excellent content. He has a uh, he he has a, a swiftly moving swiftly swiftly moving prose. Very nice prose. He puts it all together very quick. I, I'm in, I'm happy he's back. He wrote a piece uh, with regard to, in particular, attempting to uh, cultivate or to create as a group uh, a, a scouting report on Lucas Duda's arm. Yeah. Uh, but this was not – he also, of course, cited in, in addition to the play in which Hosmer scored on uh, Duda's uh, poor throw home. Uh, he also cited the possibility or the or the definite uh, the definite possibility that uh, the Royals had some knowledge about uh, uh, Jose Bautista's arm or his, his, uh, his practice of throwing it into second base. Yeah. Uh, and maybe uh, something – David Price tipping change-ups. Um, or not tipping change-ups. I guess the point is, 
What what do we know? What is the what are the facts we have about the Royals' advanced scouting? Well, not a ton. I mean, so every team does advanced scouting. They don't do it all in the same way. There's still some teams who actually have advanced scouts who go on the road and travel and sit behind the plate and take notes. Uh, a lot of teams have moved to video scouting. So they're, you know, every game is now on MLB TV and it's, you know, pretty easy to, uh, uh, kind of chart games or, you know, notice patterns from having people watch video instead of actually attending the games. It's obviously a lot cheaper, uh, and potentially more efficient. Um, you know, there's companies like Baseball Info Solutions who do this for you and, and track a whole bunch of stuff and you can buy, you know, data from them or Inside Edge. Uh, so, you know, teams do advance scouting, uh, in, in various ways. Every team does it, not every team does it the same way. And I think it's probably tempting to say that the Royals, you know, maybe do it better because they're seen as more of like a scouting, uh, older school Dayton Moore kind of, um, you know, traditional GM. Uh, and I think whenever, People, you know, people like to draw this divide and say, you know, this is a scouting team or a sabermetric team. And since the Royals lean more towards their upper management having scouting backgrounds, it's tempting to say, like, oh, the Royals must be good at advanced scouting too. When, you know, maybe well, we, we, I don't think we really know. Okay, uh, is there any what with regard to that play on which uh, Hosmer scored with two outs in the ninth inning, right, the yep. tying run? Uh, do you? Um, is it okay? So it's easy. One wants to make quite a bit of it or examine it in some depth because it was a it was an important play and it was also emblematic of the Royal success up till that point, yeah. um, or at least an interesting part of their success. It's also possible that Lucas Duda just made a not great throw home. Um, and yeah, it's happened before. I mean, frequently first baseman. One of the reasons they might be at first base, besides a, a lack of range, uh, is because you don't necessarily want them throwing the ball. That's not a position where you have to throw a lot. Right. Mm, I don't know. Do you think, would you say, given the circumstances, it was a smart decision by Eric Hosmer to run home? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, in watching it in real time, I thought that was a really good risk to take, uh, mostly because of the circumstances of the inning, right? So there's two outs. Uh, Giri's familiar is pitching, so he's a good pitcher. You're, this is not a guy you expect to get a hit against. Uh, bottom of the lineup's coming up. Like the, the Royals were not in a position where you could think like, oh yeah, staying on third base, you know, you just need to get a sacrifice fly or there's, you know, you're, you've got a chance for a pass ball. Like you're generally assuming that the next guy is going to make an out and you're probably not going to get the run in. So, uh, I think Tom Tango, uh, said on Twitter, like the, um, the break even point for that success rate, uh, based on the change in run expectancy versus him, you know, him making or winning expectancy for him making it versus getting thrown out, uh, imbued about a 33% uh, success, you know, that was kind of the break-even point. So if one in three chances, Duda throws the ball away or Duda doesn't see him coming home in time or Darno drops the throw or the umpire just gets the call wrong um, or, you know, any weird thing happens, one in three, uh, it's worth doing. And, and if, if your odds are better than that, if you're at 40 or 45% or 50% or something, um, you know, then it's uh, a good bet. And it seems like Given the lack of frequency of which Lucas Duda probably uh, threw home after a throw from third base during the season, and the fact that um, he's not a great defensive uh, infielder, and um, you know, I think it's the kind of bet that you could say we don't know exactly how often he was going to be safe, but it seems like to me uh, one in three seems low. So, what is your guess about the the extent to which Eric Hosmer is or is not making these calculations? As the play unfolds, 
Probably not. I mean, I think, you know, he wasn't thinking, you know, what are my, what's the break-even point? Uh, right, no, but, but yeah, right. When, I mean, in any human person, like, you have to use quite a bit in the way of uh, rules of thumb at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, I think my guess is before that play occurred, he had made some consideration of like, okay, the infield's in. I'm going to go if this, but not that. And he'd already worked through some scenarios in his mind. And so obviously one of the scenarios was ground ball to third base. I'm not going, which is what happened. You know, David Wright fielded the ball, but he had probably decided, hey, look, you know, David Wright is sidearming his throws to first base, not getting a lot on them. Uh, there's some chance David Wright might make a, a poor throw. So as soon as Wright go, as soon as I see Wright release the ball, assuming he's not like right next to me, this was a, you know, a ball that took him towards the middle of the field, I'm gonna break home and bet on either Wright making a mistake or Duda making a mistake because I don't think either of them are very good defensive players right now. So I don't necessarily think that he was evaluating, you know, where Wright was or the velocity of the throw. I think he had kind of decided, uh, because of the quality of defender that both players had, this was a risk that he was going to take. Do you suppose that if uh, Wright had allowed Wilmer Flores to take the ball and then retreated back to third base, that this would be something that was also still, that that, that Hosmer would have gone? Uh, maybe. I mean, if Wright doesn't cut that ball off, I mean, it's, that, that's a tough call, right? Because yeah. uh, I think it would have had to been like Wright maybe not breaking on it because it would be weird for Wright to get there you know, be in position to, like, uh, make the play, Hosmer would be assuming he was going to pick up the ball, and then if the right just let it go or missed it or something, he probably wouldn't have time to react, uh, you know, before Flores picked it up, and then he, he would probably stay at third base. But um, if the ball had been hit a little bit more up the middle, I wouldn't be shocked if he would have gone, because, you know, Wilmer Flores, another not great defensive player, has a history of throwing airs, uh, mostly in the first half of the year, but overall, you know, not a guy with a really accurate arm. Um, and I think if you look at it and say, look, there's two outs, bottom of the order coming up, Familia on the mound, we're probably not going to get a hit this inning. So if we have, you know, even if you're estimating that you're more likely to be out than not, uh, if you think you have a real chance, 30, you know, 20, 30, 35% of getting home and them making some kind of mistake or, um, you know, a call going in your favor on a close play, uh, you know, it's a better chance than having, you know, the bottom of your order hitting against one of the best closers in baseball. Right. And it, it, it should be said, Familia did not really allow... Yeah, he, he pitched really well. Yeah, like, well, I, mean, he didn't, I think it was like what two innings, no hits, no runs, no walks, two strikeouts, and a blown save. <laughs> you know, that's rough. That's rough. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I don't know what to say about Daniel Murphy. He was uh, Daniel Murphy was in position to make two different plays, and he made neither of them. Uh, I mean, two. No, I mean, he made some of the other plays in which right. he had opportunities, but plays that you would expect uh, any sort of uh, major league second baseman to make, including yeah. including Steve Pierce. Who's not even really a second baseman, is he? It'll be fascinating to see kind of what Daniel Mar- Murphy's market is this winter, because obviously when he was just crushing it at the beginning of the postseason, we're like, man, this guy's making himself a ton of money. But then I think, you know, he gave a lot of it back in the World Series when it seems like the Royals may have adjusted to his adjustments and said, look, this is, you know, not a guy who's made a dramatic change that can immediately be turned into like a long-term sustainable power spike. And no one thinks he's a good defensive player. So if you have a, you know, um, a third baseman on the wrong side of 30 who probably shouldn't play second base that much longer, who's underpowered, 
uh, not the kind of guy you want to be giving a, a lot of money to. Uh, but when Murphy was hitting bombs left and right, it looked like, you know, I think I thought at one point John Heyman speculated he might get 75 million over five years. Uh, that's not happening anymore. Well, would you, uh, well, two, right, I'll, get, I'll make a statement first and then I'll ask a question. The statement is this, uh, we, I've run, uh, we've, we've collected the data on the contract crowdsourcing project. Uh, Daniel Murphy, uh, received the 17th highest co- overall contract estimate. Uh, four, four years, $12 million per year. So four years, $48 million. Yeah. Tied, uh, tied with Matt Wieters in that regard. And it should be noted that the crowd is usually low. So, uh, right, the crowd is usually low. Yeah. I would say a reasonable expectation based on inflating the crowd's adjustment would probably put him at like 456 or something. Right. And is it, is it, is it the generically about 15% or something like that? Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly because it's different across the board. But yeah, I mean, you could inflate it like 10 to 20%, uh, probably a little bit more than that on the high end, a little less than that on the low end, but he's in the middle. So somewhere, you know, yeah, 50, pick 15%. Uh, so right, you, you know, 15% of 48 million is like seven and a half million bucks, seven million bucks. So that puts them right around 455. Okay. All right. Uh, let's, uh, in terms of, uh, now you mentioned. Which I'll take the under on, by the way. I would. I you'll take the under on the figure. And actually, I, it, you know, it might be, it, the figures might be altered based on when the yeah. crowdsourcing was performed. Right. Cause I that believe. Happened, I would imagine if you redid it after the World Series, the numbers would be lower. Yeah. That, yeah. And, and, and well, yeah, oh yeah. So here's the question then. What do we know about the degree to which a particularly Notable, uh, I guess very strong or very poor, but I guess it would, it would apply more to very strong. A very, uh, a notable postseason performance can have on a player's, uh, f- free agency. I mean, I think it, it does matter. It's the last thing teams see. Um, especially I think it can matter negatively. Like, uh, you know, before Johnny Cueto had that really good, uh, complete game, uh, victory, his stock was down. And, you know, I think there was, if he had had another poor performance and only lasted a couple of innings, given up a bunch of runs, there probably would have been a lot of teams who were wondering, is this guy healthy? Uh, first of all, this is a guy who has, a, you know, lingering elbow problems or at least a history of, of, uh, missing starts. And, um, you know, I think there would, he would, he had a chance to cost himself a lot of money. I think on the upside, it's harder to make a lot of money. Like Murphy obviously had a, you know, great run, about as good a run as you can have the first couple of weeks. And even then, I think we were pushing it like maybe he went from 336 to 460 or something like that, um, uh, or 455, whatever. I mean, you know, it's not a dramatic jump up where he pushed himself into the $100 million club. So I don't think teams are going to ramp up their expectations of a player's value based on a tremendous postseason. They, they might say, okay, this guy might be a little bit better than we assumed, um, but they're not going to dramatically overhaul uh, their previous estimate of a player that they weren't in love with. Uh, based on a good postseason, but I do think you know if you show some signs of being injury or or being injured or you know uh, having some kind of fatigue, uh, you can cost yourself a lot of money. So it's really just it's it's more a question of of those games representing the most recent data points. Right. I mean, they do matter. You know, especially you're, like look at the guys Murphy homered off of, right? Like, I mean, you know, uh, the fact that we're not counting those on a season line when he homered off Clayton Kershaw and Jake Arrieta and Zach Greinke and you know these are like the best pitchers in baseball. So the fact that he did this counts, and and team <coughs> teams absolutely should be uh, taking this into account. But you know, it's also three weeks worth of baseball. Right. Okay. Uh, what do we know about the the degree to which? Um, Franchises really do um, copy the the strategies utilized by the World Series winners. What do, I, mean, I, I know that you know in a broad way, obviously we've seen teams adopting more analytical approaches, and of course, what the, I think both the, the Phillies and Mariners, um, with their recent 
front office changes have, have probably showed signs of doing that. Uh, that might be Brewers uh, as well, yeah. Right, the sorry, right, the Brewers as well. Um, and so there's obviously some sense that that that's part of at least a larger trend in baseball, if not one necessarily a product specifically of aping the uh, of aping the World Series winners. But what what do we know about that in terms of especially the 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 amount of money that teams are willing to invest in terms of style of play? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some kind of. Uh, uh, copycat effect where teams look at what the you know most recent winner teams who have been successful lately have done and said let's try and figure out what of that we can reproduce um and i think you know the fact that the royals are so unique in their style of play probably makes that a little bit easier like if you know if if one team just wins a whole bunch of games by acquiring a bunch of superstars who hit a bunch of home runs like i mean what are you going to do like oh our plan is going to be to get you know great players like you know uh that's not so easily just transported to any other organization but when the royals who are you know a mid to small market team um you know build a uh very specific style of play around uh lower priced players and middle tier free agents and home developed guys and they kind of have their own style it's easier to look at and say okay you know is this something that we could emphasize in terms of, you know, more contact or more speed or more athleticism or, you know, having like nine good relievers, uh, not putting so much emphasis on the starting rotation. Like there are um, kind of things that the Royals do differently than everybody else that, that I think will make it easier for teams to say, we're going to try that and see if that's something that can work outside of Kansas City. Yeah, well, I uh, Matthew Corey uh, wrote a piece recently too, just yesterday, I guess, yeah. uh, looking at the clubs that were most uh, – Similar to the Royals, um, or you know, he said he said here are the here are the traits for which the Royals are known. You know, among right. them being ability to make contact, uh, strong bullpens, etc. Uh, let's look at the clubs that were were best at these uh, particular skills during the during the regular season. Uh, prob- fortunately for Corey, I suppose uh, the Royals were the most like that. Yeah. Uh, during the course of the season, and then if he had come up with a formula that had them not like them themselves, <laughs> that would have been a problem. Yeah. That's right. When. It, how am I not? That's a you, you will not know this because it's a reference to a movie, but there is a movie that exists called I Art Huckabees, and there is a character who says, "How am I not myself?" and he keeps repeating it, um, and it's disorienting. How am I not myself? How am I not myself? This sounds, that, that, sounds like something you really want to watch. This is a uh, this is an aside. That movie's also like 15 years old. Uh. Um, uh, let's see, Dave. Uh, talking to Dave Cameron here. What, um, <laughs> now you're disoriented after yeah, talking I'm about dis- that guy. I'm disoriented uh, now because the Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Baseball Club, uh, are the are the other t- club that's most like. And really, Cleveland seems like a cl- a team that should have given given their strengths. They, it seems like they should have made the playoffs at some point over the last three years. Um. They they've had a they've had a, an above average offense and also above average pitching, which leaves out one one important trait I suppose, uh, their defense. They've had yeah. Two defenses. Yeah. I mean they yeah I think they've they've been a weird team the last couple of years and mm-hmm. that they uh, uh have vacillated between types of I mean like you know early in the season they were one of the worst defensive teams ever and then they called up Francisco Lindor and moved Lonnie Chisholm all to the outfield and then they were terrific defensively so it's not like the Indians had this kind of clear cut this is what the Indians are they've you know, moved from 
being a you know a team that can hit and had bad pitching, and now they have good pitching and they don't hit that well, uh, and they went from a terrible defensive team to a good defensive team. Like uh, I don't think we can say like oh yeah the Indians uh, kind of have this established brand identity, but they seem to be at least moving in the Royals' direction, uh, whether intentionally or not. Is it is there anything objectively about the Royals that uh, would lead you to believe or, you know they would say this is uh, these are obvious ingredients for a team to win? Um. So I think there's probably something to uh, putting more emphasis on your bullpen than your starting pitching. Uh, it's tricky, right, because basically the regular season and the postseason don't resemble each other all that much. And so you can't really build a team around your bullpen in the regular season because you're going to just work those guys to death. So if Although, you just get like, did not the, the Royals, didn't they lead the league in uh, relief relief innings pitched during the, during the regular season? They did, yeah. uh, I believe, because their starting rotation really wasn't very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they were constantly going to the bullpen because their starters were bad. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, they, you know, Greg Holland blew at his arm last year and like had to pitch through like a torn UCL. Uh, if you ride your relievers very heavily, there's a significant chance that you're not going to have those guys in October, or at least they're not going to be, um, you know, maybe as good and you're going to have a lot of reliever turnover. Um, yeah, I think in the Royals case, uh, they made a couple of really smart low low uh, cost health bets with Chris Medlin and Luke Hoshaver uh, that turned out pretty well in their favor. So they were, you know, Ryan Madsen as well. I mean, like they, they ended up getting three pretty useful arms for not a lot of money on betting on guys coming off of injury and paying for their rehabs. And um, so, you know, I think you can you've seen teams do that kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if more teams kind of tried to load up on those kinds of pitchers and just take a bunch of flyers and say, you know, let's try and go get some broken pitchers who used to be good and see if they turn out. But, I, I mean, I think, like, having a 100% success rate on those guys is not something to be expected. So, um, you know, and they obviously are, you know, already had Wade Davis and Greg Holland and Kelvin Herrera. So, you know, those guys weren't necessarily necessary. They weren't counting on those guys turning out. And once they did, you know, now they had six or seven or eight good arms or whatever. So um, I think it's tricky in the regular season you need – uh, either a decent enough rotation or a good rotation in order to save your bullpen, or you just need to be able to churn through 15 or 20 guys uh, so that when guys do blow out, you have good depth behind them, which is not so easy to do. Uh, but then in the postseason, like starting pitching is really quite overrated. Like, uh, you know, it can help. Certainly the Mets, you know, rode their starters to the World Series. Um, but I think as we saw, like the Royals – Played it well, uh, uh, well enough on defense and had good enough pitching, especially after trading for Johnny Cueto, that they could kind of hang with the Mets for the first five or six innings, and they had a huge advantage in the you know the last three innings plus extra innings um, where two of the games were decided. So if you can cobble together a good enough rotation to get to the postseason, then you don't really need you know kind of the classic. Uh, we have to have aces, you know, like, uh, no, no team had a better front two than Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke and they went out in the first round. Like, uh, I think the, the days of building your team around starting pitching should be diminishing to some degree. Right. And, and, well, it also, cause more clubs are, more clubs are getting into the playoffs. Is that right? Uh, in part, because it's, uh, you don't need to be quite as good during the regular season. And okay, yeah, sure. Right. So the barrier to entry to the postseason is lower, right? So you can now kind of squeak your way to 88 or 89 wins or whatever, and, and uh, basically what the Mets did, right? Like the Mets weren't a great team. They uh, they won enough games to win a bad division, and and then they uh, uh, you know kind of rode through some hot pitchers in the in the postseason. Yeah, it's interesting too in terms of roster construction, right? Because you you mentioned these the, the, the Royals do seem to have uh, they do seem to have and have had in recent years a number of guys with big arms who 
either um, were never going to have success in the rotation because of, you know, the high effort deliveries or who just didn't have success in the rotation. Like, you know, they had what Luke, Luke Hochaver, um, Wade Davis. Wade Davis is a, seems to be a totally different guy as a relief pitcher. Um, yeah. An even wider gap than you'd expect from most players. I mean, they used uh, Chris Medlin to some effect in the in the bullpen. Um, yeah, but Herrera, I think, was a starter in the minors, and he couldn't stay healthy, so they moved him to the bullpen, and obviously that's worked out pretty well. Is that is that just an argument? I mean, is that an argument, perhaps, to some degree, in favor of? Just acquiring big arms wherever you can, and then worrying about their precise roles later on. I mean, yeah, but I don't, I don't know if that's a Royals specific philosophy, right? Like, I think every team is looking for big arms. I think you know, uh, find guys who throw hard and hope they turn out well in the bullpen isn't a new strategy, right? That's not something that people are going to be like, oh, the Royals won, let's try that. Uh, I think the where the Royals had an advantage is having so many guys. Like mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, like you know, Giris Familia is you know not as good as Wade Davis, but he's not that far behind. Like the Royals didn't have this massive advantage at closer. Uh, obviously, Familia didn't pitch that well in the World Series. But if you were just going to say like on talent and expected performance going in, Familia is you know ninety or ninety five percent of Wade Davis. But the problem was that like Tyler Clipper was not. 90% of, uh, you know, Kelvin Herrera and, you know, uh, Ryan Madsen was a lot better than, uh, Hansel Robles and like up and down the chain, you know, like the Mets were using Bartolo Colon as one of their primary setup guys because they didn't trust any of their other relievers where the Royals had, you know, six guys they didn't mind throwing out there in a close game. That's really was the big separator is, um, how many guys the Royals had. And I think, you know, to some degree, not to, you know, try to, I'm mean, not trying to downplay what the Royals did, but I think, you know, it's just really hard to hit on that many relievers. Like relievers are a really fickle bunch, and it's very difficult to have a high success rate with relief pitchers like the Royals did. And I will remain a little bit skeptical that the Royals have figured out how to take a bunch of injured pitchers and turn them into good relievers, like they did this year with Medlin and Hoshiver and Madsen. And yet, at the same time, maybe that, they have. Is, at the same time, is that maybe is that a good bet for a team that does not have a lot of in the way of resources? Absolutely. Like these are smart risks to take. They should they absolutely deserve credit for identifying this as like a place to buy upside. Uh, and you know, like we don't have to spend a lot of money here. And if it works out, great. We're gonna you know hit a get a really valuable piece for not a lot of investment. Um, so the you know these are absolutely smart risks for the, t- the Royals to be making. I just think we have to like keep in mind that if another team is trying to copy the Royals, they can't plan on having a hundred percent success rate on uh, three or four. Uh, injured pitchers, I mean, you can throw Chris Young into the mix of another guy who just never stays healthy and stayed healthy in Kansas City. Like, you know, maybe they figured something out medically, but, uh, historically every team we've thought has figured out pitcher injuries has then had a whole bunch of pitcher injuries after that. So, uh, I will, I will believe that the Royals have figured out how to keep injured pitchers healthy when they do this for, you know, four or five or six years. Right. Uh, uh, and I just wanted to, Chris, you mentioned Chris Young. Somebody, he struck out 30% of the batters he faced in the playoffs. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is another example of kind of the postseason just being really weird yeah. is, uh, you know, Chris Young was a pitch to contact, one of the lowest strikeout guys in all of baseball who just gets a lot of pop-ups uh, and basically lives on infield flies. And then in the postseason, he turns into a dominating strikeout machine. Like, there's no way the Royals' plan for the season was, you know, we're going to get into an <laughs> X-rating World Series game and Chris Young's going to strike everybody out. Like, that wasn't part of the blueprint. It just happened. Right. Well, this is a good thing to have happen. Uh, with regard yeah. to, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you about Johnny Cueto, who, who uh, was a Royal in, in a moment. I, w- I want to ask you uh, also, though, about the decision to send out Matt Harvey for the ninth inning, or perhaps I should say 
Matt Harvey's decision to send himself out. Right. To, uh, to make himself player manager. Right, for the ninth inning. There is, this is, this seems to be a, the sort of, the sort of moment, um, the perception of which is entirely informed by what happens after it, right? Because yeah. if Terry Collins says, okay, you seem so very, uh, confident about your ability to pitch the ninth well, if Harvey does pitch it well, then everyone is in everyone is in love with both Matt Harvey and Terry Collins. Right. And right? they would like during the broadcast they kept showing pictures of Jack Morris of like, you know, this is the legendary uh follow up to that great performance where Jack Morris threw a ten inning shutout and was like one of the greatest World Series performances of all time. Like, you know, if Jack Morris had given up a two run homer, no one would be talking about Jack Morris twenty years later. Right. And then and then on the other hand, if Harvey argues Passionately to go back in after shutting out the Royals for for eight innings, and then Terry Collins says no, and then if he puts in Familia and Familia immediately um, gives up the lead, then this is not great for Terry Collins. Yeah, he, he was in a lose lose situation. Right, he yeah. was. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Uh, at the time, I didn't have a strong opinion on what he should do. Harvey was pitching really well. Uh, Familia is a good pitcher. Uh, you know, you do rather have Familia starting an inning clean rather than having a, a base runner on, but he's the kind of guy who can get ground balls. So if you don't, know, like you put a guy on, Familia can come in and theoretically get a double play or at least a double play opportunity. Um, so I, would, I didn't really have a big problem with Harvey starting the inning. I, I think like it was the kind of, Decision that seems like a big decision where the outcome either way probably isn't a big deal. Like there's probably not a huge change in win expectancy versus, you know, and having Harvey start the inning versus Familia start the inning. The one that was surprising to me was letting him face Alex Gordon. Like once he walked, uh, or Kane, Eric Hosmer, Kane, I guess. Yeah. yeah, once he walked Kane and you yeah. have, uh, uh, a runner on base and now Harvey's pitching out of a stretch and now you do kind of need a double play and Harvey's not a big ground ball guy. Uh, or you'd at least like a double play anyway. Um, I think at that point, it seemed like going to Familia would have been the better choice. And so leading him in to let Osmer hit the double, that's the one that I think was probably the most surprising to me. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not an enviable position, I suppose, for Terry no, right. Collins. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, he even said that he decided to go with Familia until Harvey came over and just basically said, like, I want this. You know, this is mine. And I think when you're in the moment and your player is kind of demanding something of you and has pitched that well, you probably feel some sense of obligation to let him try, right? So, like, it's not just a tactical decision at that point. It's also a uh, relationship decision and kind of thinking about, like, uh, how he's going to manage Matt Harvey the rest of his, you know, Mets career. Right. Right, because uh, maybe if if he doesn't if he doesn't exhibit any sort of uh, trust in the pitcher, then this affects this affects Harvey's. Uh, not necessarily his confidence, but uh, his relationship with the team, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Harvey looked at this as like he had a rough year, PR-wise, and you know, the innings limits and all that. This was his chance to just shut all that up and say, "Look, season on the line. I went out and threw a shutout in the World Series. You all can go take your I'm soft and you know all those critiques and shove it." And he had a bit, basically, a chance to just wipe out all of the criticism he's received all year. And that's what he wanted to do. And it's understandable. And it's understandable that Collins wanted to give him that chance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now, uh, I don't know, how, how huge of a, of a bummer is that for your life? Hey, obviously there's, there's a bit, if you're, if you're a starting pitcher for a team in the World Series, um, you have reached a point in your profession you know, that many people do not reach in whatever their profession, right? And yeah. if you're, you know, if you're a coder, if you're a coder for, uh, 
you know, Bing, Bing.com, right? Like the chance, like the equivalent of, you know, it's really, it's rare that you'll be recognized as one of the best coders for Bing.com, right? Yeah. And I think if there was like a coding World Series, Bing probably wouldn't make it. But. Probably not, probably not the first at the top, right? So there's, a, there are not very many positions where anyone can have that, but to have it on such a public stage and in a field, uh, you know, athletics, sports, baseball, where, which is, you know, does have, receive a lot of attention. You have an opportunity, you know, you, you, there is a sort of a sense of privilege there. And then, so all, all that is good, right? That's generally says, well, this is, these are all things that you have, um, you know, what, these are things to which you have access that most other people don't. But yeah. then to, but then to F up real hard. Yeah. <laughs> right after that. Right. That seems like it would be a bummer. I guess is it? Do you think because the privileges, the potential privileges and honors are greater than than so are the defaults, or do you think the next day Harvey, not the next day maybe, but in the off season, not, not even Harvey himself, but you, if you were in that position, how like on the like the the depression scale, where would you rest? Do you suppose? I mean, I'm a you know I'm a pretty competitive guy, and I, I will admit to. Like, you know, I play pickup basketball pretty regularly and, uh, or at least semi-regularly. And even though these games have like no, no meaning whatsoever and no one's watching and no one will remember the, the outcomes of them, I still get frustrated when I lose. And, you know, even if I play well and my teammates don't play well, so we lose because, you know, they aren't making their shots or playing defense or whatever, it frustrates me. Like even the next day, like, you know, we played last night and my team lost a couple of games. That we were close, like we lost like, you know, 12, 10 or something. And, uh, you know, I was like trying to figure out in my head, like, as I went to bed last night, what plays we could have run differently. And like, this was like a random pickup basketball game on a Monday night. Right. Uh, the stakes you know, are pretty even, low in terms yeah. of the world. And, uh, so I would imagine if Matt Harvey has <laughs> a similar or higher level of competitive streak than I do, which seems likely, that this <laughs> is going to bug him for a while. I think, uh, you know, he really wanted that ninth inning. He wanted to, you know, walk off the mound and send the game back to, you know, send, make sure that the Mets had tied the series and, and going back to Kansas City. And, uh, I think he was probably pretty bothered by, uh, by the fact that he couldn't quite close it out. Yeah. Uh, Even though he pitched really well. He did pitch really well. All right. Well, listen, you've, uh, more than, uh, fulfilled your obligation at this point. Um, that's it. I, okay. I'm not going to bother you with anything else is what I've decided. Okay. Oh, here's one question. We're, we're doing the crowdsourcing stuff. Do you think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, no player to date, what is it, two or three years, who has been extended a qualifying offer has re- has accepted the qualifying offer? Right. Uh, well, how many players is that? It's usually like 12, 15 every year, isn't it? Yeah, it was 9-9 the first year, and then it's been creeping up as people have realized the players are not going to take this. Uh, so I think we've had like 35 or something. Okay. Do you think that this will be the first year in which a player does it? No. I think okay. uh, players, do, especially players who get to free agency, do not want to take one-year deals. All right. Okay. okay. That's uh, Dave Cameron said it. Well, thank yeah. you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right. That uh, that has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.